When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Doug Marie's from Cleveland.com here with you for another edition of Buckeye Talk. I might take a it might take a week off, like in two weeks. I had a plan for this week and then I, I, I couldn't do it on Monday and we adjusted the plan and we have a great podcast. My plan is to have one next week and I think I might take the week off after that if that's cool. Is that cool? Hey, um, we're going to dig in on Urban Meyer's success in close games and whether Ryan Day can duplicate that. So as we continue, I have a file started at Cleveland.com of the 100 best players under Urban Meyer. And I want to do that. So I want I still want to encapsulate some of the things that Urban did. I want to sit down with Urban. I got to get in. I got to get in and see him. Um, but I want to, what I mostly want to do is be able to look at Ryan Day in an interesting way as compared to the most recent guy who had success here. So we have Mark Roberts, a loyal listener of Buckeye Talk, who is my guest this week. And we dig in on Urban's record in close games because Mark looked it up. So he gets to be on the show. So you can read me at cleveland.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Douglas um, you can follow Stephen Means on Twitter at Stephen underscore Means. There's some stuff happening with Ohio State coaches availability on Wednesday. We'll dig into that later, um, but I'm recording this before that happens. So we have a great interview with Mark. I'm going to get to your questions. We appreciate you guys listening. But, but let's kick this off with a specific topic that I've wanted to get into for a while, and we're going to get into it with the guy who did the work. Happy to welcome Mark Roberts to the podcast. And let me tell you, people, we've we've had some fans and some listeners on the podcast in recent weeks, but I can tell you the absolute guaranteed way to get a spot on Buckeye Talk is to do work for me. So Mark Roberts put together the kind of list that I love um, and did the research that now I don't have to do myself. So that is why Mark got an invitation from all the way down in Texas. So, Mark, I know you have your uh, Buckeye coffee mug ready to go, and I appreciate you joining me on Buckeye Talk. Thanks so much, Doug. It's really an honor to be on the podcast. You do an outstanding job every week, and especially being in Texas, kind of a little far away from Buckeye Central, and you keep me connected and help me uh, stay with the team, what's going on, what's happening. So uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of the podcast. I think you do an outstanding job. I 
I'd give you a hundred star rating every week if I could. Well, another reason that you're on, Mark, is because you are saying nice things about me. So I will always invite people on the podcast who want to say nice things. So I appreciate that greatly. And Mark, the one thing that I have learned uh, through my 15 seasons now covering Ohio State football is that Buckeyes are everywhere. And I don't know if it's like a psychological thing, but it, you know, earlier in my life, I'm not originally from Ohio. I did not grow up an Ohio State fan, so I was not looking for Ohio State things for the first 32 years of my life. But the last 15 years, I have been looking for Ohio State things. And every time I go on vacation, I'm walking around Disney World. I'm going to be walking around Disney World in a couple of weeks. I'm walking around Disney World, and I feel like I see Buckeye shirts everywhere. Like, do you see Ohio State stuff out in your life in Texas very much, Mark? Or am I just obsessed with it because this is what I do for a living, and I, so I feel like the Buckeyes are following me? You do see Buck stuff uh, here in Dallas. Uh, there's a pretty substantial contingent of Buckeye fans here, but you're right. Uh, two weeks ago, my wife and I were on a Caribbean cruise, and we got off a boat in some small island somewhere, and there was a guy wearing an Ohio State hat, and I gave him an OH, and he gave me an IO. So we, we're pretty much everywhere. You people are everywhere, and I hope you're all listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, Mark, so listen, this is, what, this is from uh, April. I think it's when I first brought this up on the podcast um, about Urban Meyer and close games. And I like to say general opinions that may or may not be based in fact, because that's kind of what I do here. And then you, Mark, you come in with the big guns, and you research this, and you find out that Urban Meyer, in his seven seasons, he only lost nine games at Ohio State in seven years. You said he was 22-3 and three in games that were one-possession games in the fourth quarter, and that included a 6-0 and record in overtime. So first of all, um, when you decided, okay, Doug said this, let me go look this up, when you found out that that record was 22 and three, were you surprised by that? Or is that what you had expected? I think that's probably a little bit higher, a little bit better percentage than anybody would have expected. He has uh, one of the all time highest records in, in close games in college football. I think we all knew that, that coach Meyer was an exceptional coach, but 22 and three is, is pretty amazing stuff and going six and oh, in overtime, Overtime is pretty fluky stuff. Just about anything can happen. And so to be 6-0 in overtime is, is really, really remarkable. I got done with all that. I thought, wow, another way that we, we know that Coach Meyer is an exceptional, exceptional college football coach. And so from your perspective, Mark, as someone who, who follows the team like you do, do you have an answer for why? What is your gut instinct of why Urban Meyer – his teams in Columbus won those games at such a high level. Is it luck or is it something far beyond that? Well, I think there's going to be some element of luck because, like I said, there are some pretty fluky things that happen in overtime games or in close games. Look at the Maryland game last year. If if that kid just underhand tosses the pass to the end zone, Maryland is going to beat us there. So there's a – there's some luck involved in all of that, and and things can can turn around on you. Gus Malzahn was 12 um, out of his first 13 ones four games, and then he went a streak where I think he lost six in a row. So he it it, it can go either direction, and uh, I, I think maybe maybe Coach Meyer has been has been the the beneficiary of some luck. 
Somebody said, though, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I think that's Coach Jimmy Johnson who said that. And and I, I think you have to credit his incredible players. Coach Meyer's teams have unbelievable talent. And I think we've all seen games that were close that eventually the Buckeyes are just better. All 22 guys are just a lot better then the 22 guys across from them and they just wear them down and they wear them out or they make the play that needs to be made and, and they just over, they just overwhelm them. And so I, I think that has a huge, a huge part of, of uh, a lot of the credit to his victories would have to go there. I think their strength and conditioning program is probably second to none. I think uh, Coach Mickey needs to get a ton of credit for that kind of thing. And probably some of that comes down to Urban himself and, and being bold in some play calling and be, being willing to to take a big risk and, and to do something dramatic to try to shake the game open. I say that, and, of course, you're looking at uh, one of the recent close games, the famous Michigan game in 2016, and we need a fourth down play, and it's J.T. Barrett, keeper. Boy, who saw that coming? That was really a risky call there, <laughs> Coach Meyer. So I, 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 that just goes to show you uh, how those games can turn, and, and I'm sure the folks in Ann Arbor still think that, that JT was short a half a mile. And, and, you know, when I saw the play, I, I knew immediately <laughs> that he was uh, way over the line for the first down. No question about it. You had the angle from down there in Texas, Mark. You knew. You can see it a little bit better when you're 4,000 miles away. There's not much doubt about that. I, I've never seen a Buckeye penalty, uh, and uh, uh, they, the rest miss a holding call that I can see clearly on every play. It's not that I see the world through Buckeye, through scarlet colored glasses, though. I want to be clear about that. I am completely fair and unbiased in every way. So so let me address a couple things there, because I do have some theories on this. And, I, and, and during that stretch in uh, 2016, when they were just pulling close games out again and again, they had the uh, – well, they had the, the, the Wisconsin overtime win that really spurred it for me. I remember writing a story after that. Um, but I have, I have a couple thoughts on that. One is I think you started off with the talent edge. And when I'm looking through your list um, – there are some of these games that were close, you know, that it maybe it's Indiana or Purdue or Northwestern or Minnesota. And actually, there's a Northern Illinois in here from 2015 that you say the, Hus- the Huskies kicked a 31-yard field goal with 746 left in the game to cut it to 2013 and then it never got any closer. But some of these games, it's like, yeah, I mean, Ohio State's better. They're just better, and they probably shouldn't have been in close games with those teams. But I do think at the end – Raw talent goes a long, long way. And when you have more good players, you usually win. And most of the time, I mean, most of the time when they take the field, they have more good players. So most of the time in the fourth quarter, I think that rises to the surface even more that you talked about Mickey Marotti and the strength and conditioning. I also think Ohio State has better depth than a lot of people. So when they're rotating receivers, when they're rotating defensive linemen, when they're rotating cornerbacks, they can go three, four, five deep at some positions that that other teams maybe can hang with you with the starting 22 on both sides. But when you're getting down to the 25th guy, the 28th guy, the 30th guy, Ohio State's really going to have a talent edge there. So I do think just the overall depth and high level of talent comes out in the end in some of these close games, especially against the lesser people. I I also think that you are right. and, And I don't know how to characterize it, but I do think it's motivation, it's grit, it's the fist-pumping whatever 
of Urban Meyer that I think of all the things, and we, we when you talked about Urban Meyer, I think there was a time in his career when he was a great offensive schematic guy with what he did with the spread offense. I think over time, he became less of that, and he became more of a motivational genius. And that whatever it is that you need a team to reach down with five minutes left in a game and think, I'm going to win. I'm going to find a way to do this. I think Urban Meyer actually had a skill. I think that can be characterized as a skill that can be characterized as as coaching acumen that you get your players to believe that way. Mark, over time, do you think you saw that? Just to expound on that idea, do you think Urban Meyer being the head coach with the way he coached, with the way he coached in practice, and I think this is all tied together with why Urban Meyer eventually had to step away. He went so hard that he he burned himself out. And we know it was a medical issue here at Ohio State, but it, it was a medical issue exacerbated by the fact that he pushed himself so hard. But you push these guys so hard on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in the last five minutes on Saturday, they're more prepared to find a way to win than the other guys are sometimes. Do you think that's an actual thing, Mark, that, that Urban Meyer being that way helped them win? Yes, I, I think that's an actual I, – I think that's a reality, particularly – the way he pushes the team to be so competitive. Uh, we all know about the banquet at the end of uh, fall camp. And if you, if, at the beginning of fall camp, if you've done your workouts, you get to go to the banquet. And if you don't, you have to go eat uh, cheap hot dogs right. in the other room. So he pushes the guys all the time so hard uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that by the time you get to Saturday, they're, they're mentally tough enough to stay in the game. I don't think there's any way that you can look at coaches and not say some coaches just are better in big games, and we don't know everything that goes on on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays to know, but there there are plenty of coaches. I don't think anybody ever thought Marty Schottenheimer was a terrible coach. Marty Schottenheimer is a great coach, but in the playoffs, his teams consistently underperform. There, there's something going on there in the way that he's preparing his team. If, if I can jump sports to basketball, Coach K is, at Duke is very famous for talking about the NCAA tournament and how they approach it as three two-game tournaments uh, over three weekends. And uh, Clearly, Coach K knows something about how to get his team ready to play in a really big, in a really big tournament and have his kids relaxed and all the things that, that go with some of that. So there's some things that, that you're going to need when you're playing Northern Illinois and you ought to be up 400 to nothing and with 746 left in the game, it's a one-score game. If you throw a pick six here, you're tied. And there's something that needs to happen here when you're playing Northwestern and it's 17 to 17 with 943 left in the game. Uh, you're, you're need to get a score here, try to, try to get this game, you know, put this game away. I remember the Indiana game, Indiana recovered in 2012. They recovered an onside kick with just a minute left. And I think yep. a lot of Buckeye fans were pulling their hair out and thinking, what in this world is going on? It is Indiana. So, uh, in all of those games though, that what's the cliche, they found a way to win. Now, they didn't always happen. He lost three games. And, and we all remember the disaster against Penn State in 2016. They blocked a field goal. Now, I think there was, yeah. there was a lot of questions about should we have been kicking a field goal right there. So it, it didn't always happen. But, wow, you step back and, and look at the data, and it happened a lot. There are an awful lot of close games that Urban Meyer's teams, like I said, it's a trite cliche, but they found a way to win. 
and they went to the locker room carrying the W, and the other team was left shaking their head thinking, what just happened there, and how did we manage to lose that? Just so people know, um, again, in this 22-3 and record that Mark double-checked, the three losses are the Orange Bowl uh, to Clemson at the end of the 2013 season. Uh, Ohio State's up 35-34. Again, this is all Mark's work. Ohio State's up 35-34 with 11-35 left. That game went back and forth. Clemson takes the lead for good. Ohio State has a couple drives at the end of the game and can't get it done. Then, of course, uh, the 2015 Michigan State loss, where Michigan State kicks the field goal at the end of the game to win 17-14. And then, again, the Penn State blocked field goal loss in 2016. And those are the only three losses. So, again, 22-3. and three. Um, So I think I think that's one component of it, Mark, that that grit, that that whatever that is, that motivation that Urban Meyer found, that sort of that's a intangible kind of thing. The other thing that I think was a tangible thing was a style of play issue that that I guess maybe changed over the years. But I would say on both sides of the ball, and this is what I wrote about after that Wisconsin game. When you have a running quarterback in a way that they sort of did lean on the run, that that you always had two run threats in the backfield. that really works at the end of games, and that really works in overtime. When you have that shortened field where you have the it's, – it's not really a football game, that you have that, that short drive to get in the end zone. When you have a quarterback and a running back who can run zone reads, sometimes you can just march down people's throats. And then if you're a passing team, that can be – you know the field gets condensed and it can be a little more difficult. So I did feel like the way Urban Meyer played offense – was conducive to winning late. When you think about the 2014 win at Penn State, and Urban Meyer has talked about it a million times, the end of that game, you know, JT Barrett is just going into the end zone, going into the whiteout in double overtime and just sort of ramming himself into the end zone. And it's not beautiful offense, but it's JT Barrett, a running quarterback, finding a way to score. And that was Urban Meyer to me. And that was not just motivational, that was also schematic. And then the other side of that is, You usually had playmakers on defense, and again, you think about the way that game ended defensively for Ohio State. It's Joey Bosa basically going through two guys to sack the quarterback to end the game. You have a pass rush. They've always had a pass rush at Ohio State with great defensive linemen. So I think you get in close games at the end, and offensively, you're a diverse rushing attack that can ram it down people's throats, especially when a defense is tired, and then defensively, you have a pass rush that can get in the backfield. Again, you've been rotating defensive linemen all game. Maybe those offensive linemen are tired, and all of a sudden, Joey, Bo- Joey Bose is in your backfield. So I think there was a component of the way they played that also made them more likely to win at the end of games. Do you agree with that on any level, Mark? I think you have to agree with that. And maybe one of the things we don't appreciate enough about Urban, especially with his fixation uh, the last several years with running JT, is that that does set up well at the end of the game. We're not running some five-wide offense, and, and you're throwing the ball into a ton of defensive backs, and it gets tipped and gets picked off, and, and, and you go home the loser in that situation. So I think what you could say about that is that Urban, more often than not, brings the best 22 players to the field every week, and then if the game gets close, his style of offense relies on the best of his players to make the plays to win the game. Instead of throwing it to a freshman wide receiver and he misses his cut, he's running the long route and you lose the game on a pick, he's giving the ball to JT Barrett against Michigan and saying, we need this first down. 
And then if you remember on the, on the next play, Curtis Samuel goes around the end and uh, Michigan apparently did not understand that that play is legal. And uh, they were all standing on the other sideline watching. So uh, he, he just puts the ball in the hands of his playmakers and they, and they make the plays. That's, that's really, really good strategy. And in, in Texas, we had the Houston Oilers forever, and, and people probably remember, uh, folks got a little brain there here, remember Earl Campbell, and people were very critical of Coach Bud Phillips uh, for running Earl Campbell 40 times a game. And what he'd always say about that is, if you have an Earl Campbell, you have to run him 40 times a game. And, and I, I think that's exactly right. When you have that kind of talent, why are you giving the ball to somebody else? So Urban does a pretty good job of making sure in tight games the guy who can win the game has the ball. Now, <clears throat> there is a notable exception to that in mm. 2015 that probably cost us a national championship. And maybe uh, that's why in 2016, 2017, 2018, we, we didn't see that again. Playmakers had the right guy had the ball. Okay, so let's, let's transition now um, a little bit and look forward with this because we've established, I think, in our opinions, why. Ohio State was 22 and three in those games with Urban Meyer, and that it wasn't just luck; it was it was some other combination of scheme and motivation. A lot of things went into that. So, in the Ryan Day era, let's address two parts of this: how Ryan Day is going to run his team in terms of scheme and what he wants to do, and then the motivational aspect. Let's start with scheme first. Really, we saw the beginning of the Ryan Day offense really last year. 2017, I think, was a 2017 was a, was a, a transitional year. 2018 with Dwayne Haskins is the arrival of the pass first Buckeyes, which I think, you know, Justin Fields is maybe is not going to be Dwayne Haskins. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast, but we can we got a sense maybe of what Ryan Day ideally wants to do. So that's going to be different than what Urban had with a running quarterback. With a five minutes left in the game, we're going to slam a running quarterback and a tailback down your throat. I think the Maryland win in overtime last year of, of all these games that we talk about, you know what, it's close at the end. It could have gone either way, but I don't really think it was luck that Ohio State won. They earned that late. I think the Maryland overtime win with a game in the 50s was as much luck as any close game, I think, in the Urban Meyer era. That really absolutely could have gone either way, that Ohio State had to rally to tie that game late. And then again, it's kind of like a messed up two-point conversion shot. Maryland decides to go for the win. It's there. They don't convert it. It's not like Ohio State really ever stopped them defensively. We know all the defensive problems of last year. And then again, they J.K. Dobbins did run for 203 yards in that game on 37 carries. Dwayne Haskins threw for 405 yards. But again, that's just an offense where you're, you know, that was also the big game where Dwayne decided, okay, I'm going to be more of a run threat. He ran for three touchdowns. Everybody made a big deal about, okay, here comes Dwayne Haskins. And to me, again, if Dwayne Haskins is running, that's the third most effective thing you can do as an offense because you'd rather have him throw it or have someone else run it. So I thought that was overblown that Dwayne Haskins ran. Anyway, schematically, do you think the Ryan Day style of play will be as successful winning tight games as Urban Meyer was, because I do think you look at the Penn State game from last year, for instance, when they had to rally, they couldn't get anything going offensively. They had to rely on the screen game and throw in some really short passes um, late in that game to to spark the offense, to give them a chance to pull that out. They had the, ben, the big Ben Victor catch and that kind of thing, but it wasn't really necessarily a slam the ball down their throat. You had to throw to win. 
in these late games, Mark, will Ohio State be able to win if they're throwing to win late in the game as successfully as they won when they were running to win late in the game? Well, I by nature am an optimist, so you have to factor that into anything that I say. I'd have been standing on the deck of the Titanic saying it's just ice cubes full speed ahead. So I'm 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 pretty optimistic about things and, and I, I think we've identified three parts of this. The Buckeyes have the best players are really, really great players. They have a tremendous strength and conditioning program, so their players arrive ready to go. And then the motivational factor that Urban Meyer brings to the table is is a key part of all of that. But I'll, I'll trade that out for this. Maybe one of the questions we should be asking is, why was Urban Meyer in so many close games? What in the world are we doing being in a close game in Minnesota in 2014? Why, why is it 31-24 uh, with 119 left on that snowy day there? Why are we in a close game with Purdue and Kenny Guyton's coming off the bench and saving the world? So I think you got to ask that question, and maybe the answer then is with Ryan Day running a wide-open offense, maybe we aren't in close games or as many close games where we're looking for Maryland to, to – what's the word I'm looking for? That's right. We're looking for Maryland to effectively Clemson there, if you remember the days when Clemson couldn't yeah. win close games. Uh, so maybe what makes the difference to the Buckeyes now is that with somebody putting their foot on the gas on the on – the, offensive side of the ball for three and a half quarters maybe the Maryland thing isn't happening because we're up 28 points in the fourth quarter so I'll I'll take that scenario I really liked what I saw from the Ryan Day offense in the three games that that he was coaching I thought he got in a little bit of adversity against TCU that was a, a difficult situation it's a nationally televised game and everybody of course is looking at him because Urban's been suspended and uh, our defensive scheme was just pretty atrocious, and we really struggled with that all season long. Our linebackers not playing very well. Um, I think you're a pretty big fan of the linebacker coach that we had last year. But despite his good work, we yeah, despite his good work, we had a tough day defensively. So Ryan Day does not panic. He keeps putting it in the hands of the playmakers. Next thing you know, some guys on the defense make a couple of plays, and the offense just opens it up, and TCU can't keep up. So that game doesn't end up being a close game. I wonder if that's going to be much more the template that we see instead of some of some of these games getting away from us that that we really never should have been. At, you know, when when we all turned the TV off and uh, someone said, "Hey, how'd that game go?" Uh, Buckeye fans were saying, "Wow, that got way too interesting." We maybe we're in for a run now where uh, we have a lot of really boring. Buckeye victories, which would be amazing. I love, I love it when the Bucks are up 50 at the half and then they turn it on in the second half. That's what I'm looking for. I don't like interesting games. Have you have you been on a debate team ever in the past, Mark? Have you ever uh, done? I have. Anything? I no? have never no? formally done uh, the high school debate kind of thing. That is not something that uh, I get to claim on my resume. Because I got to say, Mark, that was like a presidential debate kind of answer for me to say, will Ryan Day's scheme allow them to win as many close games? And your answer is maybe Ryan Day's scheme won't have them in as many close games is absolutely 
brilliant on your part. So I don't disagree. It's it's very funny for me to even think about because the way you just expressed that to me was almost like the way people were talking about Urban Meyer after the Jim Tressel era because of all the people, time that – right? I mean people – Tressel really – Tressel was winning Mac games 20 to 10. And then when Urban got here, it was like, oh, here comes a high-flying offense and now – it's almost like a similar kind of maybe next level expectation offensively in terms of opening it up the same from Meyer today that we had from Trestle to Meyer. I think that's exactly right. People need to remember that when Meyer came to Ohio state, one of the big criticisms of Irvin Meyer when he was at Florida is that the guy would hang 80 on some poor division two school and you see the ESPN highlights, and they're throwing the bomb with three minutes left to get the score to 79-2 to two kind of stuff. And people were very critical of Urban for doing that kind of thing. And we never really saw that at Ohio State. There were a couple of games we really blew some people out. Uh, there was a game that there was some coverage. Um, I think they let the media listen to the headsets, and, and uh, late in the game, Urban kind of had a coded little reference where I think this was against Florida Atlantic or something like that, where where he was effectively saying to Tom Herman, we're going to call the dogs off here. But we really did not run the kind of high scoring, we're running it up on you, we're going to score a million points here today, it's our job to score, it's your job to stop them kind of stuff. We really didn't see that in the Urban Meyer era nearly as much at Ohio State as we saw it at Florida. And and I wonder, as, as things went along, if Urban got a little bit more conservative, uh, the the winds uh, got a little tighter sometimes, and I, I wonder if Ryan Day won't be willing to score fifty in the fourth quarter. Urban Meyer again. You you don't if you're not counting the three games that go on Ryan Day's record while Urban was suspended. Urban coached ninety two games at Ohio State, eighty three and nine. So if twenty five of those ninety two games were within a score in the fourth quarter, that's twenty seven percent of the time. You know, you're coming out and, and Urban Meyer's playing a close a close game. And really you wouldn't necessarily look and say, well, twenty-five, you know, they were that's they probably were playing a game they should have won easily more often than that. So so they played some good teams in there that they were close with. They also played some teams that were clearly inferior to the Buckeyes and they still played close with them. So let's go back to my last point as I want to back into this comparing what's going to happen with Ryan Day to what did happen with Urban. And this is probably unfair because I've said it a million times. It's what I think Urban did best. Urban's best thing in the end of his career at Ohio State was motivation. All the psychological stuff that that's everybody always says that's what he studied in college. He got very into that late, much more into that than into the X and O kind of stuff. So I think he is as good as that as anybody that I've seen or heard of, certainly better than anybody I've covered. But I don't know that I've even heard of many coaches at any level in any sport who had a way to get through to guys to push them to the edge. All these motivational sayings they had, they didn't just say them, they lived them. I think that's what he did best. Ryan Day, I think, schematically is probably, to your point, is going to push it a little more. I think they will be a little more creative, a little more advanced, a little more up with what's evolving in college football, maybe with Ryan Day in charge. But I just have a hard time, just with anything, if if Urban Meyer is one of the best ever at motivation, how can Ryan Day be as good at it? So – that part of it, are you are you curious about that? Or what is the, the Mark optimistic answer of, will Ryan Day be able to motivate these guys to the level that when it's close and late in the end, they'll have the same kind of belief and the same kind of grit they had when Urban Meyer was their head coach? 
I think the optimistic answer to that is that I don't care. Um, I don't care if Ryan Day is a great motivator. I don't care if he's a great X and O guy. I, I don't care if we wear black jerseys. I don't care as long as we win. So, for example, Nick Saban, who's had incredible success, obviously, at Alabama, I don't think anybody imagines that he is a master motivator. I don't think Nick Saban is famous for his pregame speeches. I've always kind of thought that when they're behind at the half, Saban probably just looks at the whole team and says, I'll pull your heart out of your chest and eat it in front of you if you don't get out there and win this game. He seems pretty much like a monster. So he's not a master motivator, but he's won five national titles. I don't care if Ryan Day knows how to motivate. I don't care if Ryan Day knows how to X and O. All I care about is that the Buckeyes win. And if they win because they're scoring 80 points on offense and we're coming away with the W every week, good enough for me. If, if we win because he gave a great halftime speech, then good enough for me. I just need the Bucks to win. This is not peewee football. I don't care about participation trophies. I don't want everybody to play. I want – to win and preferably against Michigan I would like for us to go for three because we just need to grind them into oblivion every single year we play them Ryan Day does that I'm all good with Ryan Day <laughs> I'm not gonna win I'm not gonna win a debate with you Mark you're too, you're too good at this when you said I don't care it sounded like I was talking to my children um, that's kind of the response I normally get from them Hey, Dad has some wisdom for you. I don't care. I'm going to read to people, Mark, uh, part of the Twitter exchange we had as we were setting up this podcast because I think it's so wonderful. Oh, and don't, I'm going to read part of it. Read I'm going to read part of it. It's too good, don't. Mark. You're, you're too good. So, so we're going to transition away from the from from your great list. And again, it's 22 and three. Uh, Urban Meyer in close games at Ohio State, six and zero in overtime, and and talk about the one other thing that is driving you crazy uh, at the moment. When we were setting this up, you said, "Listen, down here in Texas, we don't mess around. Football is life. There's two seasons: football and spring football. You want to talk football? I'm always ready to talk football. Topic number one: There is no way the Buckeyes are going nine and three. Topic number two: Doug's irrational fear of robots is not as foolish as thinking Ryan Day will go nine and three. Topic three. Diet Dr. Pepper is much better than Diet Coke, is as much better than Diet Coke as Ryan Day already is better than Jim Harbaugh. So you you think, first of all, Diet Dr. Pepper is better than Diet Coke. I, I have sort of a diet, like a Dr. Pepper thing. I've never gotten into it. But there are moments when I've been forced to drink Diet Dr. Pepper that I've been surprised by how refreshing it is. So we can get into that if you want to. But I want to deal, first of all, with your your insistence that my – suggestion that perhaps Ryan Day could go nine and three in his first year is incredibly foolish. What makes you so confident, Mark, that that is a, a silly thing to say and that you're obviously thinking 10 and two at the worst, maybe 11 and one. I don't know what you're thinking exactly, but you're sure as heck not thinking nine and three in 2019. Well, uh, a couple of things about that. First and foremost, yeah, I understand anything is possible. Okay, I mean, Jim Harbaugh might wake up this morning and start acting like a normal human being instead of being such a goofball. That could happen. I'm not counting on that. I don't think anybody's counting on that. But anything could happen, so you need to need to acknowledge that. And I, I get fans wring their hands, and, and we get worried about stuff, and we fret and overthink and all that. I have some friends in Alabama talking to them after the debacle with Clemson this year, and the, uh, my friend actually told me 
Look how much younger Dabo is than Nick Saban. Saban just doesn't relate to the young player. So here he's throwing his coach under the bus, won the national championship last year, and got his team in the national championship this year. But he is ready to dump Nick Saban because we wow. need to get a guy in here who can relate to you. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's what fans do. We, we have the doomsday scenario going. But I am an optimist. I, I am an optimist. And I think the chances that the Bucks go 9-3 and three are extraordinarily small. That is not going to happen. Um, I think we'll be favored in every game that we play this year. I really liked what I saw from Ryan Day last year. Uh, I think Justin Fields is going to be a wonderful, uh, wonderful quarterback. That certainly there's a lot of parts that need to be put together, need to get our offensive line together. But you know, every team that we play has got guys that graduated. Every team that we're going to go up against is, is looking to fill some holes. Every, every team that we play is going to be trying to put it together. Uh, Trevor Lawrence. He looked pretty good to me his first year for Clemson. I don't think they're going yep. to have big quarterback controversy this year. And Justin Fields was rated right behind that guy. Justin Fields has got a year. I, granted, he didn't play a ton at Georgia, but he did play and and show something. Ryan Day seems like a really exceptional coach. And, and again, not to not to be down on Urban Meyer. I think he's an outstanding, he's a great one of the greatest coaches in college football history, but. With the talent that the Buckeyes bring to the field every week, you probably put or put some reading glasses on a bear and, and win half your games with a bear coaching you. We're just better. So you know, everybody's wringing their hands. Oh, Cincinnati, they're going to be – Cincinnati has got some significant holes. They only had one starter back on their offensive line. They lost their top wide receiver. And Cincinnati lost to Temple last year. Most team, most uh, pundits are expecting that Cincinnati's going to take a little step back this year. I don't think there's any way that Cincinnati's coming to Columbus and putting it on Ryan Day as he's trying to establish himself as a new coach and, and set things in the right direction. You think they're going to be ready for a former Ohio State coach? They will be ready to show Cincinnati something that day. In, in, in fact, as great a coach as Urban Meyer is, we talked a little bit about him being in close games. One of the things that you have to ask yourself about is, is these dreadful losses that, that we had the last two years. If Ryan Day doesn't get routed by a high school from Iowa, 55 to 24, and he doesn't lose to Railroad U, 49 to 20, you can argue that Ryan Day can set the bar higher than Urban Meyer. So I, I, I don't see any reason to imagine, just because we changed the guy at the top, that somehow the Buckeye juggernaut is going to grind to a complete catastrophic stop and we're going to lose to a Mac team or we're going to let uh, that team up north beat us. That's not that I, I, I don't see that as being a, a really viable kind of thing. Could it happen? Yes. Yes. Anything is possible. ESPN might realize that most of their exports are, uh, experts are complete morons and hire competent people like Doug, but they probably aren't going to do that either. <laughs> uh, all right. So last so last thing, is the, is the Dr. Pepper thing, is that just like a Texas thing? Is that what, is that the, the diet beverage of choice in Texas or, or why are you standing for Diet Dr. Pepper? Uh, Dr. Pepper is a Texas thing. And yeah. so probably Dr. Pepper is the beverage of choice, not Diet Dr. Pepper. But uh, maybe it just goes better with barbecue, Doug. I, I, I don't know. I've never liked Diet Coke. And so anytime I get around somebody 
who's all about Diet Coke. I'm like, seriously, do you know what that really tastes like? To me, Diet Coke has this dreadful aftertaste that's, that's, that's just rough. I would take Coke Zero over Diet Coke. But I think Diet Dr. Pepper, for, for me in a diet drink, what I'm looking for is something that is as close to the original as possible, not something that has its kind of own its own unique taste. I'm looking to to not notice that I've given up the calorie, I'm giving up the sugar to to save the calories. So Diet Coke is just that, that's probably not on not, not something I'm doing anytime soon. Uh, when I switched from Coke to Diet Coke, um, it was kind of uh, a, a stark contrast because, like you said, they're not really trying to replicate it. It is a completely different flavor. But now, to even take a sip of regular Coke, it's far too sweet for me. But I was listening to someone the other day on another podcast that I was listening to, and they were quoting someone who said. Um, I don't know why Diet Coke is experimenting with all these other flavors. Just stick to the original flavor. That's fine. Uh, and that flavor is chemicals. And it's like, what is the what is the actual flavor of Diet Coke? It's like, I don't know. It's something they cooked up in a lab. It's not a flavor. It is. It's like it's like robot juice. As much as I hate robots, I bet robots actually would like Diet uh, Diet Coke. Um, but maybe I will experiment a little bit with Diet Dr. Pepper. I will say one of the highlights of my career so far is when uh, Ari and Bill and I were covering uh, the national championship game in Dallas in 2014, and they had that Larry Culpepper guy who was the diet, the Dr. Pepper, um, you know, spokesperson then, and he was kind of wandering around, and we had him wander through one of the videos we were filming that we were talking about the game, and then uh, Larry Culpepper came through saying, get your Dr. Pepper here, Dr. Pepper here, and uh, and we thought that was funny. So I probably should try some diet Dr. Pepper just for that. Um, Mark, are you are you – originally from Texas? And if so, how did you become a Buckeye fan or did you start off in Ohio and make your way to Texas? I started in Ohio. My dad was working on his PhD in chemistry, no less. Uh, he, he got all the brains in the family and he did a PhD in chemistry at Ohio State and I was born in the Ohio State Medical Center, University Hospital there that i, I I should check. Maybe there's a little plaque in the lobby, the birthplace of Mark Robertson. Probably, wow. probably, <clears throat> probably not a little plaque there. But yes, that's where I began all things, right there in the shadow of the shoe. And then when Dad got his PhD, you know, this is the hard thing. People find out, oh, you're a Buckeye fan. Where do you live in Ohio? And then they start dropping Ohio geographic references. Oh, I'm in, I'm in Dayton. I'm here. I'm in Kettering. You know, this kind of thing. Well, when I was four, three, actually, we moved. Uh, Dad got a job with his PhD, and we moved to the South, and I've lived my whole life in the South. So for me, coming back to Columbus for a game day is just the biggest treat possible. It's so exciting to uh, – I think people in Ohio just don't realize how good they have it, and I hope you don't take that for granted. Going to a skull session and throwing some some cornhole and just seeing all the pageantry and the color and being in the shoe and – the ramp entrance and script Ohio, it just, oh, it's, it is just absolutely the greatest. And so, of course, anytime the Bucks come south, uh, I got to go to the Sugar Bowl game where we beat Arkansas. Wow, that was, <clears throat> there's a Jim Trestle close game for you. Let's button it up and hang on. <laughs> and then uh, the Cotton Bowl game against USC, which was really a, not a very well-played game at all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, always, always love to see the Bucks when, when they come south, and uh, and that's you know that's a special treat to get to see them like that because 
it's a long way from Dallas to Columbus. Well, Mark, I will, I will tell you that, uh, you know, a PhD in chemistry is impressive, but I will say football research that prevents me from having to do football research is even more impressive in my mind. So, Mark, I am grateful for your work. Um, I thought it was a really interesting way to put a lot of this stuff in perspective. I do think it's an interesting discussion. Um, we've talked about so much of the continuity with the Ryan Day transition and how much is the same. I just think it's interesting to talk about what might be different for good, for bad, for neither, just different sort of for the sake of different. I just find all those comparisons very interesting right now. So you have greatly contributed to that conversation. We certainly are grateful for your loyalty to Buckeye Talk. And uh, Mark, you have been a fantastic guest. And if I have anything to debate you on in the future, I, I will not have you on again because you make too many good points. And I think I think you won this one, Mark. Not that we, it didn't get heated. It didn't get heated. But I think everything I said, you had an answer for. So if anybody out there is uh, was ever concerned about anything that I've been saying about Ryan Day, Mark, I think you have eased their minds. Well, I, I hope I hope that the things that I say uh, will come to pass and that the Bucks don't go eight and four and Doug's calling me in December to say, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and Dr. Pepper's not any good anyway. So I, I really hope that the Bucks are going 12 and 0 and we're winning the national championship and you're not answering your phone because I'm saying, told you Ryan Day is going to be the best thing since Urban Meyer and the Bucks are going to win. Uh, I, that's, that's certainly where I'm going with this. We're going another Heisman, another, another national championship. That seems to me to be imminently doable. Let's go get it. I will say, and just, just so people know, I'm certainly not rooting for Ohio State to go nine and three. I'm, I'm trying to sound a note of caution. And I think Ryan Day is going to be good. Like I, I don't, again, I don't know that that's exactly what I would have done in the aftermath of Urban Meyer, but I think when you see what he's done recruiting, uh, from the recruiting standpoint, especially offensively, basically only offensively so far. When you see um, the way that people have respect for what he's wants to do offensively, when you see some of the hires that he's made, maybe, you know, I think Jeff Halfley's a really good hire. I think Al Washington's a good hire. Um, Brian Hartline promoting him full-time certainly has proven to be a good hire. I think there is a lot of reason for optimism. I still think you, I think you can have reasons for optimism, but also have a realistic assessment of maybe um, what could go and not even go wrong what could just maybe prevent ohio state from maxing out because basically they in a lot of ways they maxed out even though they only made they only you know one one won a playoff game one year out of seven with urban meyer in, in every other way during the regular season they, they basically maxed out when you only lose nine games in seven years so um but i i think the difference mark is that you acknowledge that as well. Well, that something could go wrong. You just have a very strong belief that I think is rooted in fact and rooted in history and rooted in talent on this roster that it's not going to go wrong. Sure, it could, but it won't. And yeah, I just think maybe maybe it could a little bit stronger, but it, it is not that I don't believe in Ryan Day. So, um, Mark, great talking to you. Love interacting with you on Twitter and uh, through everything else we've done on Buckeye Talk. So thanks so much for your time today. Well, I appreciate very much your work. Like I said, I think the podcast is outstanding. Your writing is outstanding. You really help the Buckeye fans out here to to really have some insight and some understanding into what's going on, be more intelligent fans and, and understand what the team's trying to accomplish, where things are going wrong. 
I would have made you linebacker coach, but they, they didn't ask me about that. But I, I think you were ready to jump right in there and, and, and help our linebackers play a little bit better last year. Somebody certainly needed to. So I really, Doug, I really do appreciate you and, and just look forward. First time I listened to your podcast, it was two hours. I thought, great, Scott, this guy, this is the longest podcast ever. But now I listen to the podcast and, and it comes to the end and I, I'm like, what? It's over? What the world? How did that happen? So. You just do an outstanding job, and I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for letting me be on today. Thank you, Mark. So thanks to Mark Roberts for his time and his work. Let's dive in on some questions from you guys. Um, again, I'm, I'm recording this uh, Wednesday morning, and Ohio State coaches, Ryan Day and assistants, are meeting with Ohio State reporters today. And, like, here's a little secret. I'm actually not going to be there because I had planned to be up in Cleveland for these three days because I'm going to Browns OTAs for three days and three days of Indians Twins. And Ohio State sort of announced this late in the game, and, and I was already committed. So Stephen Means is going to cover that for us. Make sure you're reading a bunch of stories from there. But I'm going to make sure I go through everything that's said there, and I'll certainly have opinions. I wish I was there to ask, uh, you know, because I get in there. But uh, I shall opine on the questions and answers of others, just like I'm going to do right now with your Twitter questions, and we'll dive right in on something that I'm sure you'll all love. Goon. Goon, see the goon. Goon's my guy. Goon's my guy from back in the day. That's at goon4218. And then goon was like, hey, how come I'm not on uh, a podcast like other fans have been? And I said, goon, you left me, brother. So now goon's back. Um, and his question is, Doug, please explain how Michigan is a 6.5-point favorite in the game this year. And so is that? I guess that's the line. Again, if I'm going to rely on Mark Roberts to do my research, I'll rely on a goon to uh, set my betting lines. I assume that's factual. It's quarterback familiarity. And I will say that I think early in college football seasons, the thing that scares people the most is quarterback unfamiliarity. And so I think people underestimated Dwayne Haskins last year and therefore underestimated Ohio State. I personally have more concerns about Justin Fields than I did about Dwayne Haskins, as I have expressed on here before. But is Dwayne is, is Justin Fields more talented than Shea Patterson? I think he is. I think, I think sort of just factually his upside is higher than Shea Patterson's, but Shane Patterson's back. And Michigan has a bunch of good receivers back. They have all their receivers back, basically. Donovan's pe- Donovan Peoples-Jones... Tariq Black. Um, they lost their running backs, but they have four of their five offensive linemen back. They lost a bunch of defensive talent. Um, first round picks were Sean Gary and Devin Bush. Chase Winovich, also a high draft pick. So they're not going to be there defensively, but I think when you bring back a lot of offensive linemen and familiar faces on offense, it just it makes easy it makes it easier for people to believe in you in things like betting lines now. So in the past, when we've seen Michigan have a bunch of returning starters, we've seen Michigan be favored to do things. They haven't beaten Ohio State yet doing it, but I think it's the lack of receivers for Ohio State, the lack of offensive line, and the quarterback change. So, you know, people are people are hedging their bets, and, and if you are uncertain about Ryan Day at all, then you lean towards Jim Harbaugh. But I, I think the thing that has happened with Michigan, and we've talked about it here, is I'm not sure that Michigan is worthy of the confidence in the familiarity. Because I'm not sure, as much as I've been saying that I think Jim Harbaugh has done a good job, he's won at least 10 games, three out of four years, in terms of elite-level performance, in terms of playoff-level performance, in terms of Big Ten championship-level performance, in terms of beating Ohio State-level performance, and they were inches away in 2016, but what have they done, even with guys back, what have they done that would lead you to believe that just because they're experienced, 
they're going to beat Ohio State. So, you know, that number obviously I think is high. I think anybody who, who views things through any kind of Ohio State lens would say that's high uh, when Ohio State's dominated the series as, it, as they have so far. I don't think it'll be a seven-point game or a 6.5-point game in November. Um, but if you want to, you know, if you want to give Ohio State a field goal in June, okay, I wouldn't give them six and a half. And then Goon followed up with, see, now Goon's bringing it. Goon, this is, Goon, you're going to be on. See, you bring it, you might get on. Additionally, what is the plan for keeping this coaching staff together long term, for instance, more than three years? So there was something that came up in the recruitment uh, of Julian Fleming where his coach had just mentioned that he thought the lack of continuity in the Alabama coaching staff maybe affected um, their recruitment of Julian Fleming. And for instance, at Penn State, the receivers coach who recruited Julian Fleming as a home state guy at Penn State for three years was a different guy every year. They went through three receivers coaches in three years. So Ohio State had changeover at the receivers coach, but they they made Brian Hartline the interim last year. Brian Hartline got to know Julian Fleming then, and then he stuck around. Now he's in year two. Now he could close the deal. So there is a constant balance that you seek between continuity on a coaching staff, but also making sure you don't get stale. I think Urban Meyer's desire to have every assistant who came here make at least a two-year commitment to the program was based on that idea. Um you don't want guys moving in and out after a year. And I think Nick Saban in Alabama has run into that a little bit. So so when you say, what's the plan to keep this Ohio State, this Ryan Day staff together for three years? It's like, on one hand, I don't, I don't know that you necessarily want that. Because you want Jeff Halfley or Mike Yursich or Brian Hartline or Tony Alford or Al Washington to be good enough at their job that people are trying to come and get them. And I've made the point a thousand times, and a lot of you guys disagree with it, about I don't think assistant coaches are the be-all, end-all. I think it's head coach and players, and the assistant coaches are middle managers. And again, everybody can throw examples in my space of, of where assistant coaches have been proven to be more than that. But there was a time when we thought Zach Smith was a good recruiter. And look, he got bounced, and look, Brian Hartline's a better recruiter, right? So, I mean, like, there's, there's always somebody next. So I do think continuity matters in recruiting, Continuity matters in getting guys to understand your system. So I think the coordinator continuity matters more than continuity in the rooms necessarily. Because if you're a linebacker, you're a linebacker. Al Washington's a better coach than Bill Davis, in my opinion, at least of college players. But I, I don't I don't think that like that transition in terms of being in the room is going to be difficult. The transition's not difficult. It's just as the coach who's replacing the guy as good as the guy was before. Bill Davis wasn't as good as Luke Fickle. It wasn't that the transition from Luke Fickle to Bill Davis was difficult. It's that they, they, they got a guy who wasn't as good. The transition from Kerry Combs to Tabor Johnson wasn't difficult. It's that Tabor Johnson wasn't as good of a quarterback's coach because few people are compared to Kerry Combs. So... I think Ryan Day wants to keep Greg Madison around for a couple years to help turn Jeff Halfley into a full-time coordinator who can totally run a defense and get Jeff Halfley, who's been an NFL guy recently, familiarized with Big Ten offenses. So then I think I don't think Greg Madison's a long-term guy. So if you're saying three-plus years on this, on this staff, I don't think Greg Madison's part of that. I don't know that you want Greg Madison to be part of that, frankly. Um, I think you want to keep Jeff Halfley if he's good. I think you want to keep Al Washington if he's good. Mike Yersich if he's good. Brian Hartline if he's good. Um, uh, Tony Alford if he's good. Matt Barnes at the moment I can take or leave. No offense to him. 
Um, Larry Johnson, you want to keep around as long as possible. I don't think Larry Johnson's going to go anywhere other than to retirement at some point. I don't think he'll, he won't leave for another job. You know, Greg Studrawa, I, I question whether he should be back. They've gotten some guys in recruiting on the offensive line. Um, we'll see how the offensive line plays this year. We'll see about Mike Yersich. So, you know, I, I don't think what I don't think you want to do, Goon, and anybody else is be be is is value continuity above everything because I think we saw. And again, if I mentioned the, the balance between continuity and staleness, I think we saw Jim Tressel's staff get stale at some points. And we didn't see the addition of a guy with a new idea. And we didn't see the addition of a guy who did things a little differently. Maybe was off your tree and brought in a new thought process. So you don't want to keep guys together for the sake of keeping them together. You'd like to retain your best guys. The most important thing is to replace your best guys when they do leave. So ideally, I think you'd like Hartline and Yersich and Washington and Halfley to be here for a while. But I think long term, it, it, it's not about continuity for continuity's sake. It's about smart balance between innovation and outside thinking and keeping a core of guys who know how you do things. But what I don't think you want to fall into necessarily, and it's like, oh, Alabama's in disarray. What are you talking about? Alabama's the greatest modern dynasty in college football. But Nick Saban has run through coaches. Seven of their ten assistants are new this year. That's that's not ideal, right? So he sent some guys on. Kirby Smart and Jeremy Pruitt were his defensive coordinators. They've gone on to giant head coaching jobs in the SEC. You do want that, but he's also burned through some guys that I think that has become part of the narrative, and I hate the word narrative. It's just the reality. It's part of what's happening at Alabama is some guys are burning out and moving on because it's hard to work for Nick Saban. Freddie Kitchens knows that. It's hard to work for Nick Saban. Um, and so I don't think you want to push guys, but I also don't think you exactly want to be a place that's so hard to work that guys want to leave. So that is my long way to answer on that, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, so let's talk about the new Big Ten commissioner, because I would like to write about this um, at some point, and I, I don't actually know if I'm going to get a chance to do it, um, because I do think um, this is a big hire for the Big Ten. I mean, obviously you saw Jim Delaney, uh, in the course of his commissionership, changed college athletics and changed the money in college athletics and changed how we all view and consume college athletics. So hiring Kevin Warren is a really important step. And I think it's 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 uh, a big deal that he's an African-American and he's the first African-American commissioner of a Power Five conference. Um, and so uh, the, the thing that I think is the most interesting about Kevin Warren, and I think a couple of you have asked about this, but to me, the next thing is navigating the amateurism changes that are coming. And I've written about this some uh, about a month ago. You guys can go read that. Um, they are coming one way or another. I don't think we know exactly what they're going to look like. But I, I do think that the amateurism model is going to look different 10 years from now than it does today. And my my guess would be that Kevin Warren is going to be the commissioner of the Big Ten 10 years from now. So he's going to have overseen this change. So here's what, the point I want to get to. There is a, a sort of a undercurrent, I think, in the amateurism discussion that is not explicitly discussed and stated sometimes. Sometimes it is. But part of the issue is that the amateur athletes who are, yes, being compensated with a scholarship and, yes, being compensated with a, a larger stipend and a cost of attendance that they have gotten 
uh, more money in recent years than they had before, but they are not yet paid, they are not yet compensated in a way that's commensurate with the money coming in from the TV rights. The players aren't paid at the level that the way football brings in money, and basketball either. Many of those players are African-American. Some of those players, African-American or Caucasian or whatever background, are um, not from a great economic background. And so you can view it through the lens that these guys are take, being taken advantage of. And, and I don't want anyone to turn off the podcast right now. I know that's a divisive subject. I know there's a lot of people out there who think, man, if I had a scholarship, that would be enough for me. That's not what this discussion is about. This discussion is that this is coming. This discussion continues to advance. And at the moment, Kevin Warren is a guy who was tweeting about Nipsey Hussle when he was tragically killed uh, several months ago. He's a guy that is has a reputation of being aware and being supportive of inclusion and diversity um, in big-time businesses like this. When he was high up with the Minnesota Vikings, he's now going to run the Big Ten. The fact that these athletes, many of these athletes, who are pushing back against a model that does not pay them to play, many of them are African-American, and they now have a guy in charge of this conference who is going to lead this discussion of amateurism, is going to be a mover and a shaker on the national scale of the amateurism discussion, and he's aware of their thought process in a way that Jim Delaney wasn't. And it's not exactly that Jim Delaney was an old white guy and Kevin Warren is a younger African-American guy, but it's part of that because Jim Delaney was never going to tweet about Nipsey Hussle. And so if you are an Ohio State football player right now, just a young man or a young woman playing college sports, I just think Kevin Warren seems like a guy who's more in touch with what that younger generation is thinking about. He's more in touch with the larger discussion about inclusion and diversity. And if you're not considering the the viewpoints of African American athletes in the in the, the collegiate model, you're just not thinking about it right. You know that that everybody has a lens through which they view the world, and it's affected by who you are and what your background is. There are a lot of African American athletes out there who are major parts of this discussion. Kevin Warren is going to be maybe not a voice for them, but he's going to be more understanding of their viewpoint. And as it relates to, are we going to pay these players? How are they going to be paid? Is there going to be stuff in a trust fund? Is it going to be outside, like an Olympic model that we've talked about that I've written that Ohio State is in favor of, an outside model where you can be paid on the outside without the schools paying you? We're going to take some more steps toward this, and Kevin Warren's going to go about it differently than Jim Delaney went about it. Jim Delaney is a guy who famously, and this should always be attached to his name, threatened the idea of the Big Ten will go to a non-scholarship D3 model before we pay players, which is ridiculous, which is ridiculous for a commissioner making millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to threaten that. It's insulting. Kevin Warren's never going to say that because he was going to relate to the average Big Ten athlete in a different way. I think that's a positive step. It's not the end-all, be-all. No matter who you are or what your background is, you have to make smart, equitable decisions. But I think that viewpoint's going to matter. So that was long on that, but I think that I think it does matter. And I think it matters to Kevin Warren. And I think, and I would like to ask, at some point I will ask the average African-American Ohio State player, and I'll ask the white ones too, what do you think of Kevin Warren being the first African-American commissioner in the Power Five, and he's now the commissioner of your conference? And I'm going to imagine that at least for some of them, 
That's going to matter. And it matters to me. I think it matters to the discussion because I think that is an underlying part of where we're headed with this amateurism discussion. The second part of the question that was asked about uh, Kevin Warren, and that wasn't actually asked about Kevin Warren specifically, but Brian May, the real B. May, the real B. May said, how big of a priority is it or should it be for the new Big Ten commissioner to lure Notre Dame into the conference? Um, Kevin Warren, one of his degrees, he's one of these guys that has a million degrees. Um, if you're going to be the commissioner of a conference, um, you usually are. One of his degrees is from Notre Dame. So there's a lot of people uh, with the Big Ten who have connections to Notre Dame, and it hasn't really done anything yet, right? He has a, a law degree. He got his law degree from Notre Dame. Um, Gene Smith played football at Notre Dame. Gene Smith, who maybe at one point was a guy that some people maybe would have considered uh, for Big Ten Commissioner. I think Jim Phillips, the Northwestern Athletic Director, that some people thought um, would, would would maybe be a, the candidate, the most likely candidate. I think when the odds came out, who's the next Big Ten Commissioner after Delaney announced his retirement, I think Jim Phillips, the Northwestern AD, led that. Um, he's a former assistant AD at Notre Dame. So all that hasn't gotten the Notre Dame in the Big Ten yet. And so, Brian, specifically to your question, how much of a priority is it? I want him in. I think you guys want them in. It makes sense for them to be in. The thing that always, that's just the issue to me is, if they're not going to be in as a full conference member anywhere, that's fine. The thing that the agreement that Notre Dame has with the ACC right now, where they're in in every sport except football, and the football agreement they have is I think they're going to play three or four games a year against ACC competition, but yet they're not committed to a full ACC schedule. They're not committed to being part of playing for a conference championship. They want their independence, but yet they want they want the benefits of independence and the benefits of being in a conference. Because really for every sport other than football, the benefit is being in a conference. Because then you, your smaller sports can play for a title. Your smaller sports can have something greater than just kind of floating around, right? The heck with that. If that's what Notre Dame told the Big Ten, we want that. I'd, take Notre Dame, I'd tell Notre Dame to take a flying leap. So I'm glad the Big Ten doesn't have that agreement that the ACC gave the gave Notre Dame. The, the agreement between the Big Ten and Notre Dame is you're in or you're out. So if Notre Dame, and I, I'm not going to say if and when because I don't think it's if and when. I think it's if. Notre Dame might be independent for the next 400 years until we stop playing football. If Notre Dame ever decides to go full-time to a conference, it's got to be the Big Ten. If Notre Dame ends up as a full-time, full member of the ACC that's a stupid move by Notre Dame, and it's a failure by the Big Ten. At the moment, let, let, let the ACC give Notre Dame everything while demanding nothing. The ACC was looking for whatever little scrap they could get from Notre Dame. So I don't think it's a priority to the point of, uh, of that it's at the top of the list for Kevin Warren. I think the Big Ten, the way it expanded, and I'm not going to talk about Rutgers. I'm not going to talk about... Rutgers. I'm not going to talk about Rutgers. The way the Big Ten expanded, they're fine. And so the, the big thing about expansion is you don't want someone to expand better than you expanded. If nobody's expanding, then there's no reason for Notre Dame to be a priority. If we enter expansion roulette again, and Notre Dame says we're ready to jump in with somebody, then I think it needs to be the Big Ten. Woo, that was another long answer. Mark Roberts, I see your question. You've got 30 minutes in the pod. I'm not, I'm not answering your question. I'm sorry. G, nearly 97. 
is there sneakily even more pressure than usual for this year's Michigan game? A loss would get Gayoff Day off to a bad start. In the eyes of fans, he's not like Trestle and Urban. He's not of stater like Cooper. Man, <laughs> you're putting the pressure on G. Nilly. There will always be pressure for the game, but does Day need a win? See, I would almost say it's the reverse. And, and like, I, the pressure's on Michigan until they win, right? The pressure is on Michigan until they win. There was not pressure on Ohio State last year when they were an underdog at home against Michigan. The pressure was on Michigan to finally win, and they didn't. I think, like, right now there's more pressure on Michigan because it's like, okay, Harbaugh, Urban's gone. Now what's stopping you? Nothing. You can't beat the new guy? Jimmy. Jimmy H. Jimbo. Harbo. You can't beat the new guy? That's pressure. I don't think, hey, new guy, why can't you beat the guy who once went to a Super Bowl? I don't think that's as much pressure. So I understand what you're saying, Gene Nilly, and the idea of getting off to a good start. Um, it just depends how it looks like. The thing that's going to be interesting, because I think the thing that, that, that when you talk about the streak and stuff, the, the real issue is that in 2011, everything got forgiven at Ohio State because it was a cluster. And it was a cluster kind of not of, 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 of I think fans forgave everything because if you, especially now in retrospect, it's like, well, it was Jim Trestle's fault. It was the players who, who took the... The tattoo stuff, it was their fault because they got suspended and Terrell probably never played, played again. It wasn't like it was a poor planning by Ohio State. They got bushwhacked by the NCAA, partly because of their own fault, to a great deal because of their own fault. But it wasn't like it was necessarily Luke Fickle's fault, right? It wasn't, it wasn't Braxton, well, Braxton, yeah, it wasn't Braxton Miller's fault. That's like, hey, Braxton Miller, why aren't you better as a true freshman? Weird stuff happened. So that loss to Michigan in 2011 really is just a, a loss that it was it was close. Um, but the loss itself was forgivable. So what is crazy is we're going to reach a point where now the next loss, assuming there's no crazy thing, is, is going to be the, the first loss that doesn't have an excuse built in, right? It's going to be the first loss since 2003 that doesn't have a built-in reason of like, well, if we would have had our full team, we would have won. So I don't know how Ohio State fans in general are going to react to that. No matter who the head coach was going to be, if it had happened to Trestle, if it had happened to Urban, it's going to happen to Ryan Day at some point. He's going to lose. And I don't know if Ohio State fans are going to say, well, we have dominated for 15 years. What are you going to do? Or if they're going to be like, I have lost touch with this feeling, so now I'm going to let the angry time come out. So I just think that, to me, is the biggest thing that Ryan Day is going to have to deal with, that it's more than a seven-game win streak. is that they haven't lost a game that didn't have an excuse since 2003. So I hope Ohio State fans are like okay with it, but I think maybe some fans won't be okay with it. That like, hey, isn't like 15 years enough? I don't know if it will be enough for some people. But I, I guess I would disagree generally, Gene Nilly, that um, there's any more pressure on, on Ryan Day because it's year one and he has to get off to a good start. I think there's more pressure on Jimbo. Discipline question from Gene Nilly. Who brought it hard this week? Urban's last few years, the team played with a lack of discipline, all the penalties and a lack of focus, slow starts in many non-Michigan games. Um... Slow, lack of discipline, lack of focus at times. 
do you think that Day will have the team looking sharper? So, you know, I didn't get really wound up about some of the penalty stuff because I think if it's from aggression, I think Urban didn't get wound up about the aggression stuff, right? I think a lot of it was pass, pass interference stuff that is if you're going to be on an island and you're going to put guys in man-to-man, you're going to give up some of that stuff. I just didn't get as wound up about it. Like, you know who's sloppy sometimes? Like the Warriors, right? So sometimes when you're super-duper talented, it's hard to stay, like, ridiculously locked in all the time because in the back of the mind, you're like, eh. You know, I don't have to be totally on every play because we're so much better than the other guy. So, like, will Ryan Day be better at that? I mean, Urban pushed him hard, dude. Like, Urban was on them. So, like, if Urban couldn't cut down the penalties, I'm not sure that Ryan Day is going to cut down the penalties, just to be honest. It kind of goes back to the discussion we had with Mark about motivation and, and how hard you push these guys. So I, I wouldn't necessarily expect that. The only thing might be defensively, if you're backed off a little bit, again, it's the kind of penalty. If you're backed off in a little more mix and match, zone and man, which I think Jeff Halfley's going to do on the back end, he's talked about that, he wants more different NFL looks. You're maybe going to give up something that you might give up some more throws. You might give up a couple throws in soft spots and zones and underneath because you're not playing man-to-man as much, but you also maybe won't get as many 15-yard pass interference penalties because you have a corner running down the field on a deep ball with the receiver all by himself, and he's putting in a no-man's land of, I might have to grab this guy Um, because there might be more safety help. There might be more cover two looks where where you're just playing a spot. You're having multiple guys there that you won't get put in that position. So, again, I don't... I don't have the example in front of me. I guess, like, do I think that, like, Ohio State lost games because of penalties? Could you show me the game where it's like they would have won this game if they didn't commit as many penalties? I I don't know that that game's out there. If somebody wants to point that game out, then we can discuss it next week. But it's not something that I was ever obsessed with. I think part of it is the nature of aggression. Um, But the other part of it is just kind of like the nature of talent. And I just don't know how Ryan Day is going to change that. Let's see. Um, let's see. Michael Walter, Mikey Dubs, 09. Fields a quarterback is dangerous because the offense is unpredictable. Zone read, quarterback scramble, etc. Dobbins is going to run wild this year. Don't disagree. This offense could light up every team it plays. Struggles will come in the passing game. Will Fields be accurate enough? Haskins spoiled us too much. Um, maybe not. I wouldn't necessarily expect that early, that there's going to be a lot of precision when you have young guys like Garrett Wilson that are going to play. Um, I think that, I'm curious what kind of passes they throw, uh, how many deep shots they'll take. Will there be as much precision with some of the shorter stuff um, where you're trying to get a guy moving in space on a short route where you maybe got to squeeze something in. I just, I wouldn't anticipate it. So I think things will be a little faster and a little looser that I think you're going to see fields be much more dangerous scrambling. And that was part of Dwayne too. I think Dwayne would, would, would stay in the pocket and, and decide I'm going to make a throw in a window. And again, we talked about that a million times in this podcast that JT sometimes seemed reluctant to make a throw in a window, make a tight throw. Um, and sometimes if you see a window that's tight and you don't want to throw it, then you run. Dwayne would throw it because Dwayne didn't want to run. But Dwayne could also throw in that window. I think Fields will run. I don't know that Fields will force it um, in that window, though I also think he does. He has leaned from some people I've talked to. He has leaned towards throwing some picks sometimes. So I don't expect as much precision in the offense. I expect I expect more scramble plays that will help them. Everybody expects that. Um, 
I think there be there may be some more dynamic things that happen at times, but I think there'll be less boom, 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 down the field, down the field, boom, boom, boom. And again, as we've discussed, the criticism of Dwayne Haskins that some people had is like, oh, these short throws. It's like, yeah, all the short throws that worked, all the short throws that moved him down the field. I don't think that that's what, the, what this offense is going to look like or the way it's going to operate this year. Harry Miller this is a Pete Capo question. Harry Miller has gotten high praise from coaches, and he just arrived on campus. Is there a chance he doesn't redshirt? I think with Jonah Jackson, an existing player, to be a prime candidate, but maybe Ryan's Day's view on young talent is different than Urban. So listen, I think I think second-team offensive line for really qualified, smart um, offensive linemen who come in physically ready is a really good way to go. Um, Thayer Munford was a second-team tackle as a true freshman. Nicholas Petit-Frere... Um, was a second-team tackle last year as a true freshman. Now, the way the redshirt rule works right now, you can simultaneously be the actual second-team tackle and still redshirt. So I think that's where I would expect Harry Miller to fit in because I do think when you look at the interior of this line, I think I think you feel good about the future of the interior with Wyatt Davis and Josh Myers there. Jonah Jackson, we think, is going to win that other left guard, that other guard spot. Um, as a one-year guy, a transfer from Rutgers. So I think you want to get Harry Miller some experience in there. He's a big-time recruit. But but like if you don't play, if you play in some blowouts, but you play six or eight really tight games where you're just not playing the backup offensive line, then you're both, which is like the ideal world. So I, my guess would be, and it's only a guess, and, and the, the point that uh, Pete made is that all these guys, they it's only a 17-person recruiting class in terms of true freshmen. Six were in. For the spring, the other 11 have reported to campus. They hit that June mark where uh, the new guys can come report. Ohio State put out all the pictures this week of, of, hey, look at all the guys coming in with their parents and moving into the dorm. And, uh, so, you know, it's a big moment in these people's lives. It's, it's pretty cool to see all the smiles and stuff. So Harry Miller's here. All these guys are here now. My guess, Harry Miller does have a role on this team as a second-team interior offensive lineman. But yet he still maybe could redshirt because of the new redshirt rules that allow you to play more and still retain that eligibility. Friendly Neighborhood Buckeye. No, Friendly Neighborhood Bunyan? What? What's your name? I can't. It's uh, Bunyan Man. Friendly Neighborhood Bunyan Man. Last year we saw a lot of leadership from the wide receivers, Paris Campbell, Johnny Dixon, Terry McLaurin. Who do you see as the most influential leaders on the 2019 Buckeyes team? Bonus question, the loudest college game atmosphere you ever witnessed in person. I'll take the second part first. I think it might be Wisconsin is hard to top. To, to top. I mean, Penn State gets it going. Um, but I think in 2010 when Ohio State was the number one team in the country and I think Wisconsin ran the opening kickoff back for a touchdown and then upset Ohio State in that game on the road, um, that was loud. That's like blow your ear out kind of loud. Um, when you get in those stadiums that are really good crowds, really good atmospheres that aren't as gigantic, and the visiting team is upsetting Ohio State, those are like memories those people never forget. So you see a, a next level, uh, see how I can say this. I think it's possible you see a next level of loudness that you almost could never reach at Ohio State because even when Ohio State fans are excited to beat Michigan, Ohio State fans at home are almost never surprised that Ohio State's winning. I think every time an Ohio State fan walks yeah, this a story? Every time an Ohio State fan walks into Ohio Stadium, he or she walks in anticipating Ohio State's going to win the game they're about to watch. When those Wisconsin fans walked in 
at night in 2010 to watch the Badgers play number one Ohio State, I don't think they anticipated winning. Maybe they saw a path to victory. In their hearts, they hoped for victory. But when you can couple surprise with loyalty and excitement, I think you take your crowd noise to a next level. So I think that's my answer to that. And I just think Ohio State's success maybe would would never allow Ohio Stadium to sort of reach that level. Who do we see as the most influential team leaders for 2019? Um, let me think about this. There's so many guys back defensively. I think Jonathan Cooper defensively is going to be there. I think Robert Landers defensively is going to be there. I think Austin Mack on the offensive side of the ball is going to be there, kind of picking up the mantle for the, that receiver room. I think J.K. Dobbins might be there. I think it's an interesting group, though, because like Tuff Borland could be there with the linebackers. Malik Harrison, I don't know if Malik Harrison's a real boisterous guy. I think Jordan Fuller's there. I think my, some of it might come from the secondary um, Jordan Fuller is going to be there. He missed spring. Damon Arnett and Jeffrey Okuda, I think, are going to be there. Sean Wade is going to be there. You have some guys in the secondary who have played and played at a high level. And so um, I think they'll bring some of that. But but I don't know. I'm trying to think who else like jumps off the page. It's like, is Chase Young going to be that? I mean, he could. Um, but I think the way people talked about McLaurin, Dixon, and, and Paris – was just at a different level. They were all sort of like three-year, four-year starters who had major roles in the team, who grew over time, and they were all just really, really good dudes, comfortable in their skin, who that leadership came naturally. So I don't know that we're going to see it to the extent that we saw it with those three receivers. It was kind of weird for receivers to be such leaders on the team. I think it's going to be more of a variety of stuff, Um, but I do think Austin Mack, Jonathan Cooper, Jordan Fuller, Tough Borland, Malik Harrison. I guess, you know, it's just you go through and you look look at the old guys. I, I guess they're the guys who are at the top of my list. But I think it's going to be different. I think Urban always talked about that, whether he felt he had the leaders, whether he was searching for them. I think early they could search. I think there might be some searching in, in preseason practice to try to figure that out. It's a good question. Um, can we be a force in special teams this year? Charlie McQuillan at uh, Y-Town West something. Wait, hit the thing right, Doug. Y-Town Westsider. A force in special teams this year will Coach Barnes take us to a new level. So Matt Barnes is the assistant, secondary, uh, the assistant secondary coach, came from Maryland, assistant secondary coach to Jeff Halfley, but part of what Ryan Day liked was what Maryland did on special teams last year. Um, I think it's weird that Ohio State hasn't been better on special teams. It was a calling card for Urban Meyer at Florida. We heard a lot about punt blocks and that kind of stuff. It certainly became less of a calling card at Ohio State there. Denzel Ward had the one big punt block in the one game, I guess the Penn State game, that helped bring him, bring him back to one year. Uh, but it's like the field goal block in 2016 by Penn State swung that game. A field goal block cost Ohio State a game. Um, and they've just never been as dynamic in the return game as you expect. So I don't know. I mean, I think, as we said, and I wrote this when they hired Matt Barnes, Matt Barnes is replacing Urban Meyer. Because Matt Barnes has that special teams designation. It's a big part of his job. He's really not doing that much in the secondary. Jeff Halfley's... The, the guy in charge there. And and when they break up, it looks to me, what we saw in the spring is Jeff Halfley's with the corners, Matt Barnes is with the safeties, but Halfley's in charge of the whole group. They have them in meeting rooms together. So Matt Barnes does have an opportunity to focus on special teams more than I think any of the previous assistants because Urban was so involved. So I'm not necessarily anticipating it. I think we've talked before. Sometimes you have a guy like Ted Ginn Jr., who is an absolute game changer. 
And I'm surprised they haven't had more guys like that. And so I'm curious to see, like, can do they have guys who can be like that? Demario has been back on kick return. KJ has been back on punt return. And that's more of a safe thing than a, di- than a dynamic thing. Um, I don't know exactly who the returners are going to be this year. But I don't know what Ryan Day's philosophy is going to be on that. And I don't – it's like putting – I like the idea of sort of having a coach, an assistant, who's, who's so invested in special teams. But, but I don't necessarily know that it's going to flip it. But – I, I sure would be interested in them having a few more returns. And there's so few kickoff returns anymore. And they were really good on kickoff coverage back before they kind of changed the rules when they would pin them in. That's what Urban was interested in. This used special teams to pin other offenses back. He wasn't as worried about using special teams to set his offense up because I think he believed they could score. He wanted to pin other teams back with their coverage units, and that's what they really worked on. So I think one thing is Matt Barnes is going to have to maintain the integrity of those coverage units and how much Urban Meyer talked about the gunners and the great gunners that we've seen at Ohio State. Guys like Terry McLaurin and Devin Smith and Jeffrey Okuda have been getting down the field and making game-changing plays. They have to maintain that. That is a high-level special team that they have to maintain. Would we like to see the return game step up a little bit? I think we all would. Uh, Let's see... Kessler, 32. Hey, Doug, how do you think the offensive line will perform this year? Other than the defense, I feel that is the biggest question mark for me. Hoping for a decline in false starts in the upcoming season, LOL. So listen, again, as we wrote, we talked about Greg Stujawa had that line at peak performance for Michigan, which is where you want peak performance. I think they have a chance to be better. There's only one starter back, but I think there's an upgrade in talent. Jonah Jackson is a guy that a lot of people are really high on. He was a very good player at Rutgers. I think that can be an upgrade at a guard spot. Wyatt Davis is the guy's a five-star recruit, basically. I mean, if that's who you're bringing in as a starting guard and he played a little bit, little bit last year, I thought Wyatt Davis looked good in spring. Um, Nicholas Petit-Frayer is like a top-10 national recruit who might be winning a tackle job. That guy's got to win the tackle job, and I think he did win it in the spring. I mean, Nicholas Petit-Frayer is a five-star. Nicholas Petit-Frayer is like the Julian Fleming of offensive tackles. He was the number one-ranked guy in Ohio State's 2018 recruiting class. So, you know, I, I think he can be better than what they've put out there. I think, you know, Isaiah Prince was a really highly rated guy too. But I, I don't know anything that would tell me that Nicholas petit Frere can't be better than Isaiah Prince. So I think we have to wait a little bit. There's only one starter back, but I think it can be better. Because it's no offense, but it's just, you know, Demetrius Knox and Malcolm Pridgen and, and, and some of the guys they were playing inside. Michael Jordan, they were playing out of position last year. That was just, that was not a great, in terms of raw talent, and just the way you would line guys up ideally on paper, that wasn't – I think last year was a step down in that. The way they came together in the Michigan game, tremendous. Credit all around. But while they are replacing a lot of guys, I think it is absolutely reasonable to expect that that maybe they can be better there on a consistent basis because I think the raw talent is better. Oh, Chris McKee, by the way, is the guy who asked about the Big Ten commission. What can we expect from a new Big Ten – from a new commissioner in the Big Ten? Um, so I gave my answer on that already. I just want to give Chris McKee, McKee credit because I couldn't remember who asked. It's a good question. He also asks, is the noon Eastern kickoff the right spot for the Big Ten marquee game? I think late afternoon is better. It builds up the game day atmosphere. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of confused by that. Um, I, I will talk to some TV people at the Big Ten meetings in July, like the third week in July. Just like the strategy behind that. I just think noon is sleepier. And like when the stuff came out last week, you know, that they're going to play, Ohio State released a bunch of dates. They're going to play their first three games, the Cincinnati game, the Florida Atlantic. Florida Atlantic, then Cincinnati, then Miami of Ohio. Uh, No. 
Florida Atlantic, Cincinnati, then Indiana. All noon starts. It's just it's just sleepier. Like sometimes, right? You're late. You're getting brunch. Maybe you're getting a nice waffle. Do you guys like to mix the sweet the sweet breakfast foods and the savory lunch foods? At the brunch, go to the brunch. Because some people go to brunch on Sunday, but you can go to brunch on Saturday. Maybe maybe brunch runs over. So now it's 12.40, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm late for the Ohio State game. They're playing Cincinnati. And you get back, and the first, the first quarter's over. Is that right? Do you want to threaten marquee Big Ten games with brunch? Is the Big Ten commissioner thinking enough about brunch? Um, it doesn't feel right to me, but I am open to the person who can explain to me why, yes, yes, this is why noon games are better. And by the way, if you're an Ohio State fan in California, let me know what you think about 9 a.m. starts. Talk about brunch. If you're in California, let me know if you've ever slept through. I guess more people in my life probably sleep to noon than the average person because my children sleep to noon a lot. I, in my life, have been a sleep-till-noon kind of person. I don't know if you're a sleep-till-noon kind of person. I assume there are people listening to this who are like, sleep-till-noon? Um, but then again, just like eating a whole pizza, maybe there are people who will be like, yes, of course everyone sleeps till noon. If you live on the West Coast, or even if maybe you're a sleep-till-3.30 person on the East Coast, let me know if you've ever slept through an Ohio State football game. Shaq Harrison, we're going to wrap it up soon. Uh, well, we'll go to Stewart underscore E4 underscore. We see what Hartline is doing on the trail for the offense. Which defensive coach, excluding Larry Johnson, will have the biggest impact on the recruiting trail? Who will be one of the headline defensive commits other than uh, the uh, Henry guy from uh, Cincinnati? Um, they're in on a lot of California kids. They're in on some uh, California linebackers, some, some West Coast secondary guys that are putting Ohio State in their top three and their top five. Um, Al Washington, I think, is the guy that, um, from my interpretation of when Al, Al Washington was hired, I just think he had a really good recruiting reputation uh, at Cincinnati and then at Michigan. And so um, I think he's growing into his role in terms of just absolutely coaching linebackers. I think he has the chance to be a dynamic recruiter. I think he has the chance to be a dynamic recruiter like Luke Fickle was, like Kerry Combs was, like Larry Johnson has been his whole life. And I think the defense needs that. So I, I don't know exactly who's the defensive commit that's going to pop. We'll, we'll have a recruiting podcast here in another couple weeks. Um, but they're in on a lot of these kids. They, they just haven't sealed the deal on a, on, a, on a big defensive guy. And I know Jack Sawyer. People say, oh, Jack Sawyer in 2021. I mean, he lives 10 minutes from campus. So if, if Jack Sawyer didn't go to Ohio State, I am not at all downplaying the importance of Jack Sawyer being an Ohio State Buckeye. I am downplaying the credit I am giving Ohio State for getting him. If you're a coach at Ohio State and you can't get Jack Sawyer, you probably shouldn't be here. Um, so, yeah, Jack Sawyer as a top 10 guy defensively in the 2021 class, huge deal. In terms of when I talk about recruiting and I say, hey, I'm waiting for Halfley and Washington and some of these guys and Ryan Day to be able to lock in a defensive guy at the level they've locked in some of these offensive guys, that's what I'm talking about. Go get somebody that's hard to get. Go win. Don't just take. Don't take the kid who wants to come here. Go win a battle for a defensive recruit. Um, Shaq Harrison at Harrison Shaq. Are you in favor of a short, fast guy on this slot or just all 6'3 guys that could jump through the roof? So there's a guy... Mookie. Who's Mookie? Mookie put Ohio State as a St. Louis receiver who put Ohio State uh, in his top five this week. And he is... Now i got to look him up. I don't know every recruit's name. Um, Mookie Cooper from St. Louis put Ohio State in his top five this week. And when Mookie Cooper from St. Louis put Ohio State in his top five, uh, Doug Maurice listened. 
because Mookie Cooper is 5'9 and 193 pounds. And last year before the Purdue game, I wrote a story that was basically like, where's Ohio State's Rondale Moore? And I talked to Rondale Moore, and then Rondale Moore set Ohio State's defense on fire. And yes, Ohio State had Dontre Wilson. Yes, Ohio State uh, had Eric Glover-Williams in here. I talked to Eric Glover-Williams for that story. Superman! Mr. Superman. I talked to Eric Glover-Williams for that story. They moved him to defense. They've had some smaller guys. They haven't had an impact smaller guy. Dontre Wilson was on track for that, and then injuries kind of shut him down. I love, I want a little slot guy. And so... I love diversity in receiver recruiting, and we've talked and written a lot lately about their change in receiver recruiting, and they're going out and getting 6'2 NFL guys on the edge, proven established receivers. And again, it started with Austin Mack, but they're not just getting athletes and turning them into receivers. And as much as I want, like, I want a small, fast guy, it's like, well, why don't you want Paris Campbell, who's like a 6'1, 200 pound fast guy? Like, it's like, oh, I want Paris Campbell, but just like five inches shorter and 25 pounds lighter. And it's like, why? Paris Campbell is as fast as the short guys. Paris Campbell is big with short guy speed. So it's like, what's up? And it's like, I like different, can I like different looks? Can I like a little variety? Like I do in my brunch, can I can I treat my receivers the way I treat my brunch? I want a little sweet, I want a little savory. So I want a little guy. And who's the guy that that uh Wandale Robinson, who Ohio State was in on last year? He committed to Kentucky, and then after he committed to Kentucky, he flipped and went to Nebraska. But you see these guys, Rondale Moore, J.D. Spielman at Nebraska, K.J. Hamler at Penn State. These little guys, they just work their way through coverage in a different way. I think they accelerate faster sometimes. It's just a different look. And if Ohio State's going to go out and get four or five top 100 receivers potentially, not top like top 100, top 150 national recruits, they've got three receivers in this class already, they might go four. They might even go five because they do really need to reset this receiver room because Austin Mack and Ben Victor are going to graduate. And then behind them, really, you've got Olave, Garrett Wilson, and then the, you have these guys that are coming in. Jamison Williams, too. He's been a little bit hurt, unfortunately, for him. I want a slot guy in the mix. So that Mookie Cooper has Ohio State. He is the number 12 overall receiver in 2020. He's number 66 overall in the 247 composite rankings. I want a guy like that in this group. I love the re- everybody. We all respect the receivers that Brian Hartline and Ryan Day have managed to bring in so far in this class with Julian Fleming, G. Scott, and uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba. I hope I said that right. But Mookie, give me a little Mookie in my life. Give me, give me a little guy. And so... The question, Shaq Harrison, is I just think it's variety. I think you see you see Ohio State as a team with NFL guys all over a defense have trouble with a fast little guy. And sometimes those fast little guys go to other schools because they're little because why would Ohio State take a 5'9 version of Paris Campbell when you can get a 6'1 version of Paris Campbell? And I would tell you, give me a 5'9 version of Paris Campbell just for something different, just for a little variety. So I hope they get that guy. Oh, man, who's giving me over-unders? One more over-unders. Okay, I'll do this from Shaq Harrison. Zach Harrison, let me do... Uh, okay, give me last four we're going to do. Shaq, rank the Chick-fil-A sauces. I don't use sauce on my nugs. I like a clean nug. I like the I like the I to uh, experience the flavor of the raw, unadulterated nug. 
when I nugged it up on a previous podcast several years ago, and I think I ate 50 nugs uh, in, a, in a podcast, all raw. I don't want to dip. Now, do I like boneless buffalo wings? I do. But I want the sauce on the wing or the boneless wing. And I know people, I, I hear you people out there call them boneless wings chicken nuggets. I hear it. I hear the disrespect for the boneless wing. I don't need the bone in there, brother. I want the chicken. Okay? So, I want the sauce integrated into the nug. I want someone in the back lathering that sauce on, mixing it up. Maybe get it in a big bowl. You swish it around. I don't want to dip. That, to me, is, is, a, is, a, half, is, a, is a half measure. So, I either want the, 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 the clean, raw, unadulterated nugget where I can enjoy that, uh, you know, that greasy flavor. Mmm. Oh, love the chemicals in Diet Coke and the grease in Nugs. Or I want it integrated with a hot buffalo, maybe a teriyaki at times, but I don't want it where I'm putting the sauce on. So no sauces for me. If you think that's controversial, come at me, bro. Next question. Mike Hudson, have you listened to Zach Smith's new podcast? No! I'm not going to listen. If so, can you confirm or refute any of the stories? Do you think you will be a future target one of this podcast? That's interesting. I think my answer is no. I, I mean, I didn't really have that much of a relationship with Zach. There are certainly uh, certainly assistants that have come through that I've known better than I knew Zach Smith. I mean, I criticized him. In 2015 and 2016, I said that Ed Warner, Tim Beck, and Zach Smith weren't getting it done as offensive coaches. And now Zach Smith is saying that Ed Warner didn't get it done, as we discussed last week, which I'm not going to listen to, but I, I know what people tweet at me. And I say, stone thrower, watch your own house, as the saying goes. So I'm not going to listen to it. Will I be a target? I don't know, because he could like take down anybody. Um, I mean, again, to repeat what I said about the nug sauce, come at me, bro, because like, whatever, I'm good. I have no skeletons. I honestly have no skeletons. Now, if you want to criticize like the way I go about my public business, that's fine. But like the criticism that you would level at me is the criticism that you could level at me right now. There's no story you can tell about me. People like people like like I think I told you that one time when I was talking to a high state player on the phone, a player that I was talking to who uh, I had through records request had found out that he had been he had been suspended for a, a drug policy violation, um, and he was like. How would you like it if I aired your dirty laundry? Like if you were like he was yelling at me, like what if I told everybody about the time that you like had had sex on a desk at your office? And I was like, dude, like I never did that. Like air it. I got nothing to air. I'm kind of a boring guy. You know, so like if you don't like my nugs takes, then like that's out there. If you don't like the way I report or write, like that's out there. If you don't like this podcast, as some people have expressed, like that's out there. There's nothing that you can bring up. There's not a story that you can tell on me because I have no stories. Now it feels like a challenge. Am I challenging people like to tell a bad story about me? Eh, am I? Is this a challenge? I'm not trying to think what Ari or Bill could say. Do Ari or Landis have anything on me? I don't think they do. I hardly ever get drunk. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, do, uh, I don't do naughty things. I'm a boring middle-aged white guy. What do you want from me? Um, so I don't think he'll come after me, but if he does... Let me know, because I'm not going to listen to it myself. Good question, Mike Hudson. OSU Sports Fan 93, do you think Fleming sees significant playing time as freshman season? I do. I think that was part of why he wanted to come here. 
But again, let's go to the handy-dandy Cleveland.com Ohio State football scholarship chart that you can get to by uh, the same method I am getting into it right now by typing in 2019 scholarship chart. And let's check the receivers because I want to double-check this because I think I know what I think, but I like to be accurate. So their receivers right now, and we'll just talk outside receivers because Jalen Gill and KJ inside as slot guys, it's just a different animal. So the outside receivers, Austin Mack and Ben Victor, are both seniors. There's no juniors. Trayvon Grimes was like in that junior class. He's gone. Um, the, and, and like other guys redshirted. So the current sophomores are Olave, Elijah Gardner, and Jalen Harris. And then the outside receivers as freshmen are Cameron Babb, Garrett Wilson, and Jamison Williams. So for, for Julian Fleming's freshman year in 2020, the other outside receivers are going to be Jalen Harris and Elijah Gardner, who are guys older than him, but have just not done very much so far. I just Elijah Gardner is just never going to factor in here. He was a late grab as a really low-rated guy, just kind of a guy they needed to fill out the receiver room. No offense to him. He just, I just don't think he's going to ever play here. There's, we've seen no sign that he will. Jalen Harris was a bigger recruit from the Cleveland area. I think maybe he could do something, but he hasn't done much yet. So, like, the guys who are definitely going to be, like, ahead of J- Julian Fleming in the pecking order, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, and then maybe Jalen Harris, maybe Cameron Babb, maybe Jamison Williams. So, like, yeah. I think Julian Fleming, like, guaranteed is going to be one of your top four outside receivers, and I'm assuming they're going to keep rotating. Like, I think – and then K.J. Hill's going to be gone from the slot, so you got to figure out who's going to play in the slot. But, like, if you had to tell me – if I'm guessing right now who catches the most passes for the 2020 Buckeyes – I'm going Garrett Wilson 1, Chris Olave 2, Julian Fleming 3. I think those are your three leading receivers in 2020. Now we'll see how it develops. Guys pop, and that's great. But like 100, 100, 100% yes that Julian Fleming, I think, has an absolute borderline starting role in the offense in 2020. Scott Duda will finish it up with you. I see your other, uh, I see your uh, over-unders, C-Keck. I'm going to hard him. And I'm going to get to him next week. I see him. We'll get to him. Like the over-unders. Scott Duda, this is another over-under. What's the over-under on years before robots replace journalists? Does this concern you at all? Or are you more worried about being killed by one rather than just being replaced by one? So, robots are stupid. Okay? And again, if you're a robot listening to this, I'm talking to you, robot. You are stupid. So the one thing that I think we have on our side, and I hope we have, is creativity. So it's like robots have already replaced the game story of like, the Ohio State Buckeyes defeated the Nebraska Cornhuskers 41-38 in an exciting game at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln, Nebraska on Saturday. Quarterback Justin Fields threw for 231 yards and also rushed for 127 yards. And See, right? You can do that. But if you're writing that as a journalist, you're dead anyway. I mean, like, that's not that's not what it is anymore. So I dare a robot to come on a podcast and talk about nug sauce, right? I dare a robot to, like, you know, like, uh, you know, make a joke. Even if my jokes are dumb, they're better than robot jokes. So I am generally worried about the diminishing opportunities in journalism, but I'm not worried about being replaced by robots. However, I am worried about being killed by robots. Um, I think we're going to cut it off there. I did not get to the email questions this week. I saw them. I'm going to Browns camp this afternoon. I got to go see OBJ. 
So I got to cut it off now. We're almost at two hours, though. This is good. This is good. I'm going to try to have a national guy next week to take a national perspective. We had the Big Ten writers on um, a couple weeks ago to talk about the Big Ten perspective on Ohio State. I want to have a national guy come on and talk about nationally comparing Ryan Day, the Ryan Day Buckeyes on the national scene. Because we knew what the Urban Meyer Buckeyes were there. I'm curious to see somebody who knows the college landscape better than me see what they think about the future of Ohio State football. So that's the hope for next week. The week after that, maybe we'll take a week off. I'll let you know. Um, Thanks to you guys for listening. We're we're done with the free tech stuff, but we are now into the pay tech stuff. And I want to tell you, I'm just going to tell you guys, and I'll tell the tech people later too, and some of you are all the same, like we're crushing it on the Ohio State tech stuff. So like, if you're not sure if you should pay $3.99 a month for my texts, I will tell you, I think we have by far the most subscribers on Ohio State compared to any other text group that we have at Cleveland.com. And why? Because you guys love the Buckeyes. And, you know, eh, maybe you like a little Dougie in your life. So I appreciate everyone who's sub, uh, subscribed to that. Again, you can go to my Twitter at Maurice or go to Cleveland.com to find how to subscribe to Ohio State texts one or two a day. Just send out a little, little uh, Ed Warner. Little Ed Warner inside story for the tech subscribers on Wednesday morning. So $3.99 a month for that. Free, free, free for this. Free cleveland.com slash OSU, all your Ohio State coverage. We'll get into next week some of the things the coaches said this Wednesday. We'll hopefully have a national guy. We always appreciate, uh, appreciate you guys listening. So for now, thanks to Mark Roberts for doing half my job. Thanks to you guys for doing the rest of my job. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.